Father, just as every week I know I stand here and I know that I am unworthy. Lord, I know that I'm unable. There, there's, there's no skill or eloquence in my voice or my tongue that could change the heart of anyone here or anyone listening online. So, Father, if we are to encounter you this morning, we ask that you would work in spite of me. Spirit, that you would move through the reading, through the teaching, through the proclamation of this holy and perfect word that you, God, have preserved for thousands of years, that we might glean about who you are, how to live and how to live righteously before you, how to obtain salvation from our sin. God, all of this is possible by you, Spirit, moving through your words. And so I pray that your words would be my words and that my words would be cast aside. Lord, that you would speak to us. Father, that you would pierce our hearts and convict us. Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would motivate us, but also, Lord, you would give us encouragement and comfort and strength. Spirit, you are able to do all of this. You and you alone. We ask now that you would move during this time. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to you, God, our Father in heaven. Amen. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to take it and turn with me once again to the New Testament, to the book of Galatians. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, there are some in the back of the pew located right there in front of you. You feel free to borrow one of those this morning if you'd like. If you don't have a Bible at home, that is our gift to you. Please take that home with you and we will replenish it and put others out there. You feel free to access the Word of the Lord by your phone or tablet or if you just prefer, follow along on the screen. However you are accessing the Word of the Lord, I would ask if you are physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's Holy Word. We are in Galatians chapter 3. Once again, we'll be reading verses 10 through the end of the chapter at verse 29. If you're still looking for Galatians, it is after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and Romans, and First and Second Corinthians, and then the General Electric Power Cooperative. Remember, it's not a power company anymore, it's power cooperative. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. So, here we are in Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. I'll read for us. When I have completed, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond with a hearty thanks be to God. Let's look together now. Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we come back to Galatians chapter 3, Just a brief recap of what we discussed last week. By works of the law, no one is justified. Nobody is saved by works of the law. Because if you seek to be saved by works of the law, you have to keep every single one of them and abide by every single one of them. And if you break a single one, then you broke all of them. And so the law was never intended to be our method of salvation. Paul makes this argument by talking about how God made a promise to Abraham before the law came. 430 years or so before Moses receives the law on Mount Sinai, before the Ten Commandments are given, Abraham is made a promise. And what we talked about, our analogy last week, we established a constitution as a country. And there are no laws that are written now that can supersede the Constitution unless we're making an amendment and there's a whole separate procedure. But the legislature can't just write a law that goes against our Constitution because what's supposed to happen is the judicial branch then reviews the later laws that came after the Constitution. If they don't line up with the Constitution, those laws are thrown out. In the same way, God made a promise to Abraham. That promise, like the Constitution, supersedes the giving of the law. The law's purpose was not so that we would have a method of salvation by the law. But that leaves us with the question that Paul asks in verse 19. Why then the law? 
And folks, this is something that Paul doesn't just deal with here in Galatians. He also deals with it in Romans chapter 6. If the law is no, no longer in play, if the law was not necessary, if what is its point? What, what is its purpose if it's not to save us? If nobody could be saved by the law and it's all saved by grace, what's the point of the law anyway? If we're all saved by grace, what does it matter what we do? This is the question Paul is addressing. And folks, honestly, if we grasp the fullness of God's grace, there should be a moment in our walk with the Lord where we question, well, then what's the whole point of that whole law thing in the Old Testament? So, wait a minute, you're telling me we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been saying it to us for weeks now, Pastor. So why does it matter what I do if we're saved by grace? If we're saved by grace and the law doesn't matter and what we do doesn't matter, why don't I just go rob a bank tomorrow? I'll be rich. I'll be wealthy. Maybe I kill somebody along the way. Who cares? I get home. I ask God's forgiveness. I've got grace. It's all good. Why tell the truth? I ought to lie all the time because it doesn't matter what I do. I'll just lie and then I'll be covered by God's grace. The way that Paul addresses this in Romans, he says, so should we sin all the more so that God's grace can abound and be proven to be big enough to cover any and every sin? Paul says, by no means. There is a purpose for the law. It's just not to save us. So what Paul does is give a very detailed argument about the purpose behind The law. So look with me there at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now, there's about five different reasons that we're going to go through that are very thick and very convoluted. So I'm going to give you these reasons very quickly, and then we'll move into the easier part of the sermon, okay? I studied all week to try and come up with a more succinct way to present these five points that we are about to go over. They're very wordy. They're not in alliteration. They don't rhyme in any way, shape, or form. They don't even have a quick, simple word to help you remember. We're just going to go over. It was added because of transgression. What does that mean the purpose of the law is? In the verses we read, Paul says that the sacrificial system, the law, was established to provide a temporary way to deal with our transgressions. Remember what it says in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So the law is added for a temporary way to deal with the sins of the Israelites until Christ would come. Salvation is still by trusting the promise that Christ would come in the Old Testament. Salvation today is by believing and trusting that Christ did come when he did. But before Jesus' death and resurrection, there needed to be a temporary system to deal with people's sin, and the sacrifice of blood was necessary to cover sin. So that's a, a tiny reason that the law was there. Another reason is to teach people more clearly what God requires and to restrain our transgressions by teaching what God requires. So remember with me that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all of his sons, and and Joseph, and all of the situations that you have up until the law is given, people are not fully aware of how they are transgressing against the law. 
they aren't aware of God's standard, so they don't really know how sinful they are, or they don't have any way of restraining the sin that is in their heart. So God gives the law to show people, hey, you think you're okay, but here's the law. Let me show you how depraved you really are. Thirdly, it was to show that transgressions violated an explicit written law. Well, what, what do you mean that there's a, a law writ against this? What, what, what are you saying, Moses? God's not happy with it. Well, it's written down. Here's the code. Here's the index. Here's where you find that God specifically commanded this to be written, and here is where you transgress. So there is a point of reference. Fourthly, to reveal people's sinfulness and a need for a Savior. Listen, Romans 3.20 says that through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law revealed how sinful we were and how much we need a Savior, how much the promise to Abraham was necessary. The last way, that the, the last reason for the law is, is honestly, we have the Ten Commandments, and then in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you got like 613 different laws. Those laws were to help people live godly, clean lives. A huge chunk of those laws were just wildly practical, were incredibly helpful for hygiene, for living, for having a long life, for being healthy. Some of those laws didn't have a whole lot to do with righteousness. Some of them had to do with ceremonies and rituals and being righteous, but a lot of them had to do with practical living. God gives instruction that is good and helpful. Hey, sometimes it's a good idea to wash your hands. You realize the Lord told his people to wash their hands hundreds and thousands of years before the germ theory ever existed. Like they didn't have any concept of what germs were, but the law told them, hey, before you eat, before you do these certain things, you should wash your hands off. And hey, what do you know? Science has proven that was a really good idea thousands of years ago when the Lord said it. Folks, there's just a practical application to a lot of the laws for healthy, clean living. Now, I understand that you can't take notes on that. I understand that that's not easy to follow or easy to comprehend. So I gave up about halfway through the week, and I began looking through how other pastors and other preachers have preached through this passage and what points they have used. And so we're going to borrow from the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, and we're going to go through his three quick, easy points. I've got some of my own illustrations to add in there, but I just want to give credit where credit is due. This is simple and easy to grab. There are three purposes for the law in our lives today. There are three purposes for how we can still apply the law in our lives today. These are three ongoing uses of the law in our lives. This also explains how the word guardian plays into effect there at the end of chapter 3. The law was a guardian, a tutor, a nanny over us. So the law helped us in these ways and still helps us going forward in our lives today. So three simple, easy ways. First, it is a curb. It is a mirror. It is a guide. The law's purpose is a curb, a mirror, and a guide. So it is a curb because it helps keep our sinful nature in check. When we know the law and are aware of the law, even though our heart does not want to do the right thing, the law helps to curb us from going too far and 
completely disregarding how to live a godly life. It's like a curb on the side of a road. As you hit the curb, you scrape up your bumper, I mean your hubcap or your rim or whatever it is. You feel that, and so you you jerk back a little bit. Maybe you really wanted to go off-roading. Maybe your heart is really set on that sin, but you are aware of the consequences. You are aware of what sin is, and I'm aware of what sin is, and it helps to curb our sinful nature. So an example of this would be if you were to order dominoes, all right? And this is confession time. Jason led us through confession in our worship time. This is me being transparent with you, all right? There have been times in my life where we've ordered dominoes, and there's been an entire medium pizza that was designated for daddy, all right? Can I just, can I just throw that out there? I'm sorry. They're not as big as you think, but I can really knock out a whole medium pizza from Domino's without checking up, without, I'll probably get me a, a Swiss cake roll afterwards and, and not feel too bad about it, okay? But in God's law, I am very much aware that that is extremely sinful and gluttonous, that that dishonors God, that that dishonors his glory, and I ought to do the right thing and just have one or two pieces. See, the law acts as a curb to help me know that that is wrong and I should resist the temptation to do that. This same thing is evident in any other sin, in any other aspect of life. If you are around some people who have some juicy gossip going down and everything within you says, I want to participate, I want to know what's going on. So-and-so did such-and-such to who and what happened and, oh, man, this is good stuff. And then you feel the need to go tell somebody else that such-and-such happened. Can you believe? I can't believe. I just, whoa, we need to pray for them. Bless their hearts. But what else happened? Oh, my goodness, this is juicy. This is good. Folks, that is against God's law. That violates a godly life. That dishonors the Lord. And so it's not able to save us. It's not as though, even though we want to participate in that gossip, if we know the law and say, I am not going to participate in that sin. Lord, I really want to, but I'm going to choose not to. That can't last for salvation. It does act as a curb because we remember how God would have us behave and we seek to behave how God would have us act, but it doesn't save us because we are going to fall short. Listen, I I don't know about you guys. I see some skinny people out here and maybe you're the kind of skinny person who's never dealt with this in your whole life, but I'm the kind of guy who can eat a whole medium pizza on my own. So clearly I've struggled with my weight a lot through my life. I've tried every crash diet, every fad diet that comes along the way. And you know what happens? It happens every time. It's actually psychologically proven. All the smart scientists figured it out. When you go to extreme control and you go to just the food that Nutrisystem sends you and you eat just that food for a period of time, well, you lose some weight, but then when you break free from Nutrisystem, all of a sudden you eat more than you were eating before Nutrisystem. And you maybe have dropped 10, 15, 20 pounds, but you gain 30 back because it's a reflex that you go extremely in the other direction. This is the same principle with the law. It is a psychological principle that is proven that if you force yourself to do it over and over and over again and you don't make a lifestyle change, that there will be this reaction of, I know it's wrong, but I just can't help it. What's going on? Tell me the gossip. I got to know. Oh, I know it's wrong and I can't. I I know I shouldn't. I know it doesn't glorify God, but give me that whole pizza. I mean, it's good. Folks, that's what happens when you try to use the law for a saving purpose. But the law was never intended for a saving purpose, just as a curb. 
And we use it in our lives today to recognize that is dishonoring God, and I must strive against that. The next thing is a mirror. God's law reveals to us how sinful we are. And I'm not talking about you've got to have all 613 laws that were given in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I'm not saying you have to have those memorized. Let's just narrow it down to the Ten Commandments. Just the Ten Commandments. Let's walk through some of these commandments to see how sinful we really are. We'll, just, we'll start off with commandment number six. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not murder is the exact Hebrew. Listen, the command thou shalt not murder shows me that I'm supposed to be so aware of God's kindness to me that I don't even think hateful thoughts towards others. Jesus comes along in Matthew chapters 5 and 6 on the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, You've heard it said, Thou shalt not murder. But I say unto you that if you look at your brother or your sister with hatred in your heart, you are guilty of murder. What the sixth commandment teaches us is that God has been so kind to us that hate should not even be an emotion I feel towards another human being. Folks, miserable failure. I have felt hatred before. I have felt rage and fury against people who have wronged me or my family. I have been sinful in that way. And the Ten Commandments show me how far I fall from meeting God's standard. It's a mirror that shows me. The seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. It shows me that I'm supposed to love purity so much that any sexual desire that I have for someone else beside my spouse is outweighed by my love of purity and doing things God's way. I am supposed to be so captivated by the thought of being pure for God that a beautiful woman scantily clad walks by and I think no lustful thoughts, that I'm supposed to never think ugly, dirty thoughts of anyone, that I'm never supposed to be unfaithful to my wife, that none of us should be unfaithful to our spouses or ever think any sexual thoughts of anyone else because don't commit adultery shows us how important purity is to the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still working on my purity. I'm still working on never lusting, of always holding my marriage in the highest regard. And my thought life is not as pure as the seventh commandment would have it to be. I fall short miserably. Then you move on to number 10. Let's just move on to 10. Commandment number 10 shows us that we're supposed to be so satisfied with God. This is, thou shalt not covet. We're supposed to be so satisfied with God and with his plan for our life and where he has us and what we have that we should never covet and want something else to complete us. Or much worse, to look at what somebody else has and be jealous of their possession because it's not our possession. The Tenth Commandment teaches us that there should be satisfaction faction that we have in God to where there's nothing else that we desire or want or need or gel or are jealous for. Well, folks, I can tell you, I fail this almost every day, sometimes twice a day because the Lord has ordained it in his sovereignty and his perfection that the Andalusia Ford dealership sits in such a location that out of the 15 ways I drive to this church, uh, 10 of them pass by that dealership. And I used to have a truck and I really liked my truck a whole lot. 
Okay, and then I made some sacrifices along the way, and now I drive a Camry. I'm the guy in the little silver Camry. If you ever pull up to some place and wonder if the pastor's there, I'm the only car there. Everybody else here has your truck, and you're pulled into the dirt, and I'm the little Camry that's just a pip, 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 parked right over here, okay? And I drive by that Ford dealership every day, and I say, Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not covet. My heart is sinful. Folks, it's a mirror. We look at the law, and it shows us a reflection of here's God's standard, and I'm not even on the map. I don't even come close. The law is a curb to try and help us resist the temptations of sin. The law is a mirror to show us how corrupt our heart really is. Uh, An analogy that I love is that the law is a thermometer. The gospel is a thermostat. The law shows me how sinful I am but can do nothing about it. All right. If you have a fever, you use a thermometer to tell that you have the fever. But does the thermometer do anything to lower your fever? If you leave the thermometer under your tongue long enough, will it just magically make your sickness and your fever go away? No. All it does is read and tell you what your temperature is. But a thermostat on the wall, if you are hot in your house and your air conditioner is working, the gospel is the fuel and the power to make a change in our lives. So we go and we lower the temperature on the thermostat. The air comes on and the house gets cooler. There is notable change that is caused under the control of the thermostat. The law cannot bring about change. It can just show us how awful we are. But the gospel is what is capable of bringing about that change. Thirdly, we got the law is a curb. The law is a mirror. Thirdly, the law is a guide. After trusting in Jesus, after recognizing that Jesus really is the Son of God, that He really was born of a virgin, that He really lived a perfect life, that He really did die our death and was raised from the dead so that we can have hope for life eternal. After being saved and trusting in that, the law shows us the best way that we can please the God that we love. The law perfectly reveals God's character to us. And it shows us what a life that is pleasing to God looks like. But see, the law is essentially just railroad tracks. Railroad tracks point the train in the right direction. Railroad tracks take the train from point A to point B of where it's supposed to go. It lays the path out. The tracks do. But the tracks have no power to make the train go down themselves. The tracks are the law. The gospel is the engine of the train that then goes down the tracks of the law. When we believe by faith, We are moved to do our best to live up to the Ten Commandments because God is in us and God's power is working through us to live the life that is pleasing to the Lord. It is a guide. It's a map. It's a compass of, all right, now that you're saved, do you want to live to serve the Lord? Yes, I do. How do you do that? Well, let's look at the Ten Commandments. Let's boil it down from ten to two, as Jesus did. Jesus said all the law can be summarized in these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, if we want to live godly lives, the law is the map and the compass showing us how to do that. But without the gospel, there's no motivation to do it. 
Listen to the very command that Jesus gives. He says that the Lord tells us these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Folks, Martin Luther commented that the law made him hate God because when you command someone to love you, you prove they don't love you. And your command to make them love you does not work. Listen, it's, it's like Aladdin. Have you all ever watched the movie Aladdin? I, I liked it a lot growing up. Even the Will Smith version, I liked it too. The, the new rehashed one, I thought it was pretty cool. I thought Aladdin was a good movie. Remember, there's rules. He says, uh, there are a few provisions, a few uh, pro quos. Um, yes, uh, I can't bring anybody back from the dead. I can't make anybody fall in love with anybody else. You, you, you remember this? Like, you guys are staring at me like this is crazy. Has nobody ever watched Aladdin? All right? I'm not, I'm not a good Robin Williams. I get it. But, I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Even the genie in Aladdin says, I can't make anybody fall in love with anybody else. Folks, God commands that we love him, and that command in itself proves we don't love him. And it's not the means by which we end up loving him. If I look to my wife and I say, you better love me. Boy, howdy, am I in for a great night that night, right? I mean, like, woo, she's going to fall all over me and just love me like crazy. No, commanding somebody to love you does not work. We need the gospel because the gospel is what Paul said in the beginning of chapter 3. The Holy Spirit comes within us and enables us to love God. The law is not just a curb that helps curb us away from our sin. We could never curb away enough. The law is not just a mirror showing us how terrible we really are, but the law is a guide. And once the gospel is in us and in our hearts, we have a guide for how to live for the Lord. And in these ways, the law is a guardian for us. But salvation comes by grace through faith in Jesus. And, you know, I've said that word over and over again, by grace through faith. The faith is an action word. It's not a mental assent alone. When Paul describes faith, he is talking about the guide of the law. Our faith, we believe in the Lord Jesus so much that it changes how we live. And we want to live a life that is pleasing to him. Not that we're going to do it perfectly, but it changes our want to. It changes our desire. No longer do we desire to gossip and sin and overeat and and lust and be filled with perversion and look at bad things on the Internet and do all of these things, lying and cheating and stealing and, and hating people and being filled with rage and fury. Our lives shift so that we hate those things about us and we love the things of God and begin to pursue the things of God, no matter how imperfectly that may be. I'm still going to lie. I'm still going to have problems all along the way. But the law is the guide showing me this is how you live for God if you have faith. You see, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. How do you and I know that Abraham believed God? We know that Abraham believed God because God said, Hey, Abraham! Pack it up, take off. What did Abraham do? Packed it up, started moving. The Lord said, Abraham, jump. Abraham started jumping. He didn't even ask how high. He didn't ask which direction. He just said, okay, started jumping. The Lord said, Abraham, go sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham grabbed his son, his only son, Isaac, the one through whom God made the promise, and he took him to a mountain to sacrifice him. That's belief in action, which is faith. We studied it last week in Sunday school, James chapter 2. 
Faith without works is dead. Works of the law do not save us, but faith that saves us will lead us to lives that imperfectly strive to follow the law. It will change our want to. And no longer will we want to run from God. We will want to live out the Ten Commandments. We will want to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will want to love our neighbor as ourselves, even if we don't do it perfectly. There's always forgiveness. There's always a chance from the Lord to redeem the way we mess it up. But if we are saved, it changes our desires. I love the analogy of a chair, right? If you believe a chair will hold you up, how do I know that you believe that the chair will hold you? How do I know that you all believe that these pews are secure? I know that you believe these pews are secure because you're sitting in them. If you were all standing up and then Jason finished singing and he said, you may be seated. And then you all stayed standing and said, no, 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 really, we believe the pews are good. I mean, I know they're a few years old, but we, we really, this is good wood. We believe it's going to hold us. That's great. I'm, I'm glad you believe it. Have a seat. Oh, no, 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 you, you don't understand. I really, I, I believe it. I trust it. it. It works. I know it works. If you know it works, sit down. Sit down in the chair. If you have faith that the chair will hold you, prove it by sitting in the chair. If God's grace has saved us, we prove that we have faith by living in a way that strives to follow God's law. Not because the law has any power to save us, but because... We now love God. Folks, think about raising a teenager. You, you maybe all had friends like this. I know I had friends like this. The law was all they heard. The law was it. And when they got to high school, and when they got out of high school and they got to college, they had just a taste of freedom. They heard so much law their whole life that the grace was never there. That their faith never matured. All that they had was law. And I'm sick of these rules. And so they shuck off all of those rules and they go butt wild, right? That might have been some of you. That might have been your kids. That might have been your friends that you know. But folks, there's a balance. You have to love so that people want to obey the law. You can't force obedience of the law for salvation. It doesn't work. And so God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't just give us a set of rules and said, if you disobey, you will spend eternity in hell and rot forever. He said, I love you, and I've got a way for you to get out of that. And folks, where we started this morning, if you've never wondered... You know, I think I could get away with anything. God's grace and God's love is so big and so expansive. If you've never wondered, why do I have to do anything for God? Then in your heart, you may be believing that you're good enough to achieve salvation through the law. If you've never wondered, what's the point of the law in the first place? Then it could be that you're trying to live up to the law in such a way you think you're good enough and you don't need God's grace. The law drives us to God's grace. God's grace drives us to do our best to follow His law. But salvation comes from the grace, the change of heart that changes our want to. 
Folks, I wonder this morning, how many of us have had a change of our desires, of our want to? How many of us secretly have just been trying to live really good lives? And you come to church because you feel guilty and you think if you come to church enough, God will accept you because that's a lie. God accepts you. God loves you. God sent his son to die for you. And if you trust in him, your want to will change. In a household where a family is spiritually healthy, it should be abnormal to miss church. Kids should not ask, are we going to church today, tonight? Kids should ask, why aren't we going to church? Not because you have to come to this place to be saved, but because if you're saved, you love coming to be with the people of the Lord. It's a vital difference. And some of us come to this place because we feel like if we come here enough, and if we do enough, then maybe God will love us. You're living under the law. And grace has come so that you might know the riches of God's mercy and God's love. But trusting in that will change your heart and change your desires to run from our sin and to do everything we can to live a godly life that is pleasing to the Father. So I wonder this morning, where on that spectrum do you fall? Have you realized that God's grace is sufficient for all of our sins? Has that incredible, immeasurable grace driven you to then live a godly life? Or are you just trying to be godly on your own strength and your own power? Because the law does not have the power to save us. You and I need God's grace. That's the point that Paul is making in Galatians chapter 3. This morning, don't trust in your own strength. Trust in God's grace. Trust that the Lord loves you. Let's pray. Lord, your law is not contrary to your grace. And we are so grateful that you did give a law to show us how sinful we are. To help us to curb our sinful tendencies. And to guide us into living for you. Lord, we love you so very much. God, forgive us where we try and do it on our own. Forgive us where we forget the purposes of the law. Forgive us where we think that our sin isn't important because your grace will abound no matter what. Lord, help us to trust that you have given us righteousness by your death and resurrection. And that it doesn't stop there, Lord, but that you give us your spirit to live our lives for you. Lord, help us to trust in your gospel. Spirit, give us the power to live for you daily. Help us to follow you. Even though we'll stumble, even though we'll fall along the way, help us, Lord, to love you well and live for you. We ask all these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit.